turn and read again this morning in Judges chapter 13. Taking up again that same text in chapter 13 and verses 1 through 5 only. Judges 13. And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines forty years. And there was a certain man of Zorah, the family of Danite, of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and bare not. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto the woman and said unto her, Behold now, thou art barren and bearest not, but thou shalt conceive and bear a son. Now therefore beware, I pray thee, and drink not wine or strong drink, and eat not any unclean thing. For lo, thou shalt conceive and bear a son. And no razor shall come on his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite unto God from the womb. And he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. Stand with me please, if you will, again, and let's sing together number 467. When sinners cry, though all my crimes before thee lie, behold them not with angry love, but blot their memory from thy book. Create my Still afford, and let a 
to plead the merits of my soul. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. Terms of deliverance. We took up on last week. This was the method that I have chosen specifically to take up these first five verses in this book, in this chapter. They are so pregnant with meaning in just the reading of them, one can see. But I, for the sake of sermons, must always bring, it is my task, to bring to the text some or other method of order. And it is this method that I've chosen for these verses to extract from them what I have called terms of deliverance, or if you prefer, conditions of deliverance. We opened the text last week by reminding you that we find in that very first verse we pick up Israel in this perpetual cycle that I laid out for you in the message. God blesses them with peace and plenty. And in those quiet times of peace and plenty, they sin and abuse the mercies of God. So then the Lord plagues them with his just pains for their wicked unfaithfulness. All in one verse, we find that Israel did evil in sight of the Lord and that the Lord turned them over then to the blessed eyes. And so the cycle continues. And then we find that they cry out over and over and over again. In this cycle we find that they cry out in a short-lived remorse. But our God in his great compassion nevertheless sends a deliverance and peace is again established. And it is just at this point where they Cry out to God that we find them when we open chapter 13 of the book of Judges. I did apply to your heart in that message that I hope you do not find yourself in a place of criticism for Israel because every one of us can look in our own heart and find the same treacherous cycle. God blesses. There's a time of quiet, peace, yes, even prosperity. And in the midst of that, we find ourselves easily distracted by the world. And we lay aside the law of God, and he brings to us just punishment. And so it was with Israel 40 years Forty years, this Philistine 
pestilence has gnawed away at the heart and life of Israel. And they are paralyzed under it. Until they begin to cry out. And I did say on last week, it surely was not only Manoah and his wife. We know from this context, we're not allowed to see as it were the scenes where they are interceding to the Lord as we have seen in many other places in this history. But nevertheless, the context makes us know clearly Manoah and his wife were distressed and crying out to the Lord in these matters. Israel groans for a deliverer. And we find from this text that God has begun to move himself sovereignly to provide Israel a deliverer. I said in that message, and I emphasized in that message, that it was God who moved himself. Modern Christianity would have us to believe that it is man who is the determiner of these things. And if we could just find the right formula and then bring ourselves to exercise that formula, we may in fact produce deliverance or move the hand of God to deliverance. But there's no indication from this text or any other text in the Bible that man has moved the hand of God. I saw a church sign this week says, Prayer changes God. Hmm. What a wretched thought that God could change. And that we have the power to do that. It is not man that is the deciding determiner, but God has sovereignly moved in this text. Forty years, but now God has decided to move. And as this text opens to our hearts and we see what he has do, it does to move and to bring a deliverer, I find here in my mind certain conditions for that deliverance. Context if you please. I gave you number one on last week. Number one condition. Term. Under which God brings deliverance. Is unfortunately that evil. Must have exacted its price. Forty years. Evil has exacted its price. What is that price? Only God can determine. And how long will it take? Only God can determine. But whatever the time and whatever the price, God will exact that term in his righteousness. Evil must have exacted its price the just reward for the heinous affrontery committed against the sinless benefactor. What has he done to deserve it? 
sinless, perfect benefactor. Sin must exact its price. And can I say to you, this law, this principle equally applies to the saint. What will it cost? What will it cost you, Jonah? Only God knows. What will it cost you, David? Only God knows. What will it cost you today, saint? Only God knows. But I know this. Evil will exact the price. And it must be paid. Secondly, the condition of deliverance. A deliverance will be sent when and only when the saints are made to thoroughly understand not only the justice of their misery, but also their own utter helplessness to effect any change. The scene wounds me when I read it, especially when I read it out loud. Those verses, the words barren and bear not. Verse 2, she was barren and bare not. And this was undoubtedly an incredible pain for her. A constant, every waking hour, a day of every day was a burden and a pain to her. She knew she was barren and bare not. But here comes the Holy Spirit. Here comes the Lord. And what does he say to her? Thou art barren. And bear not. And surely those words must have come like a sword into her heart. She already knew it. She already suffered daily under it. But the Holy Spirit comes along and presses it on her again. Woman, thou art barren and bear not. What a pain. What pain. But what's what is it saying to us? It's teaching us that if a deliverance which is about to be revealed is to come, there must be the realization that the saint can do nothing, nothing about it. Nothing about it. As painful as these two words are that come to her heart, they must come. They must come. She must hear it. Nothing, nothing can she do. Oh, I reminded you, chapter 7, Gideon pointed this out. The Lord pointed this out to Gideon. He said the people are too many. So he whittled them down and the Lord came back and said, they're yet too many. Why? Because deliverance must come from the Lord and they must know it. I would ask you this morning, has the Lord ever put you in a place that you've made, been made to know it? Your heart had to cry out and call, I can't do anything. I can't do anything. 
Help me! Help me. I can't do it. That's a condition for deliverance. You must come there. But now this morning I give you thirdly. It is God who sets about sovereignly to do what flesh cannot accomplish. Verse 3 again, And the angel of the Lord appeared unto the woman. (laughs) The angel of the Lord appeared to the woman. And said unto her, Behold, now thou art barren and bearest not, but thou shalt conceive and bear a son. God sets about himself sovereignly to do what flesh could not accomplish. This church, you, my friends, this church of all people have no need that I should belabor this point. But nevertheless, I give it to you here in our text. This surely is a condition under which our God will demand a complete surrender if ever he is to bring deliverance. It must be seen and known that it is altogether the sovereignty of God that must be faith. I did see a commercial the other day. Graham, Billy Graham's son. And he made a charge for sinners. He said, you, you've probably seen the ad yourself. He says, you're a sinner. You need to be saved. And then he said, just close your eyes right now and say these words with me. And he rattled off a few words. And then he said, now, let us know the Lord has saved you. As if God was just on the man with a few little words. The sinner could just be whole life cleared up with just these few words. That is an example of a theology that that teaches that the power of salvation and the power of God is within the means of man to accomplish. But it is not so. God is sovereign and all of His works are sovereign in every real revival that history records reveals the testimony of this truth that God moves sovereign. God moves on. <laughs> I cannot help but chuckle. I get such a blessing every time I remember it. Dr. Hal Sackner preached that great message, Can God Furnish a Table in the Wilderness? It was just a Wednesday night service, church. He didn't even have a sermon 
or an outline. He testified himself that he came to the pulpit. He didn't have anything but a Bible and a scripture. And he started reading the scripture. And I ordered a copy of that message not terribly long ago. And the secretary of the church told me that they're still sending out those messages. Hundred every week. People requesting that message. That Wednesday night service God moved in sovereignly. And of the thousands of messages Dr. Siler preached, they're all gone and forgotten. But this one, and what happened that night? God sovereignly moved in. And I chuckled to my Arminian brethren and say, Oh, that's how it is. He's sovereign. Brother Seidler stood and said, when I started tonight, I didn't have anything but a Bible and a text. And God has given me angels food. Angels food, he called it. What was he preaching? Don't miss it. What was he preaching? God can furnish a table in a wilderness. He was extolling the sovereignty of God. Whatever about his doctrine, whatever about his theology, in that one hour, he was magnifying the sovereignty of God and the Lord showed up to identify with it. Just brought a heavenly breath to say, Amen. <laughs> Oh, sovereign. I said this is a condition for deliverance. That God be recognized that it is altogether of his own sovereign will that he does this. God could have left Israel in the bondage of the Philistines another 40 years. He could have terminated it 20 years earlier. He did what he wanted to do sovereignly. That's what I'm trying to get you to understand. And it is the recognition of that that is a condition for deliverance. But finally now, I bring us to this most critical of the terms under which our hearts must lie if ever we are to see His deliverance from our just afflictions. May I say that again? I want to describe this fourth point to you. This is a critical term, condition, under which our hearts must lie if ever we are to see His deliverance from our just afflictions. I said it in my prayer but for the sake of those that don't get the prayer and the recording, I'll say it again. The deliverance that's needed in America this morning is not a better government. It's not a better economy. It's not a more secure border. It's not a stronger military. It's none of those things. The deliverance that America needs this morning are not those things. But it is the sovereign work of a sovereign God bringing deliverance on his own terms.
And here's one of them we find in this text, number four. There must be an absolute surrender to his holy law. Quickly and fully embraced. There must be an absolute unconditional surrender to his holy law. Quickly and fully embraced. Look at verse 4. Now therefore beware. I pray thee and drink not wine nor strong drink and eat not any unclean thing. For lo, thou shalt conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come on his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite unto God from the womb. And he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hands of the Philistines. Manoah's wife is barren. And by the way, she's not just barren of a child. In this text, she's barren of a name. This poor woman's barren. Utterly barren. She's barren of a name. Manoah's wife. And the angel of the Lord appears to her and says, this is what you must do. You must take on the law of God for this child. You must take on the law of God for this child. And you must adhere to it unreservedly. Make no mistake now, I'll repeat something I've said in last week's message, but I may repeat it again and again. Make no mistake. Our obedience to God's law is not and can never be the cause of God's mercies. But it is ever and always will be the context of it. Our obedience is not the cause of God's mercy. Never has been, never will be, but it will always and ever be the context of it. It is the incontestable condition imposed by a sovereign. Oh, the waters I fear and I never know who hears these messages. Hardly ever even think about it. But the waters of this modern so-called revival of the doctrines of grace, the waters of this modern so-called revival of the reformed faith has been poisoned by the ungodly compromise and wholesale dismissal of God's law. That movement, which started some decades ago, started out with every appearance of being a refreshing rain cloud 
full of spiritual blessings, but has turned out to be a quasi quasi piety full of lawless compromise and carnality because they dismissed the law of God. Wholesale and out of hand, they dismissed the law of God in all of their doings, all of their preachings. Oh, nothing, nothing can raise the ire of some of those brethren quicker than this. Just mention the law of God and you've got a contestant on your hands. Here, our Lord says, here are the terms of deliverance for Noah's wife. I mean for the law of God to be executed upon this child. And it'll start in you. Not, I say it again, not that our obedience merits his favor, but his mercies demand our obedience. We're not bound by the law like Israel was bound. But we are bound to the law of God. And any theology that rejects that doctrine has rejected the truth. His law is eternal, written in the heavens. It wasn't just on those tables of stone. It was out of the heart of God. He wrote the first tables with his own finger. Blessed Rogers in 1615 said this. The signification of the Nazarite was this. That the Lord would have all that come near unto him. And will be in his service to be separated from the common sort. Which do not examine their ways after the rules of God's word. But walk after their own heart's desire. He said if there's one thing clear in this Nazarite vow, it is that God will have those that will come near him separated from the world. And hereby, says Brother Rogers, hereby and under his ceremony, he required that of his, which is which in plain words he doth elsewhere say, Ye shall therefore be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And also he says, Purify yourselves even as I am pure. Be merciful as your heavenly Father and be ye holy for I am holy. Inasmuch that in another place he says, Without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. And the signification of the Nazarite doth exclude all that are unclean and unsanctified from the Lord's presence and His favor and His service. Dear Brother Rogers in 1615 would point our hearts out to the fact in this text that God has required it as a condition of his deliverance that his people would submit to his law. Submit to his law. Submit to his law. 
Oh, someone else has said that God's greatest power of deliverance here, as in every place, is directly tied to and proportioned by her faithfulness to this vow. God's deliverance in this text, clearly, a casual reading, God's deliverance is tied to and proportioned by her commitment to keep this vow. God's power in your life and mine has ever been and shall always be tied to our obedience to his law. Now if you want to go off and call that legalism, bless your heart, help yourself. But I stand on it. I say to you from Exodus chapter 14 that there will be no water standing like walls for Israel to pass on dry ground. There will be no walls of water in that river without the obedience of those priests walking in with that. I say to you from Joshua chapter 6, there will be no walls falling flat into the earth without the obedience to the terms of the march. I say to you from Second Chronicles chapter 5, there will be no, there will be no Shekinah glory come down on that holy place without the specific obedience to the details of the building. I say to you from Second Kings chapter 5, there will be no healing of leprosy without the requisite washing of Naaman that God instructed must be done. I say to you from John chapter 9, there will be no sight restored to the blind man without obedience to the demand to wash in the pool. I say to you from John chapter 21, there will be no drought of fishes and miracle of supply without the obedience to cast the nets on the other side. Oh, on and on and on. I could go and I'd love to you. I could tell you from a thousand biblical examples, this is the condition of God's deliverance. Obedience unto holiness. Obedience unto holiness. Oh, under the crafty guise of shunning legalism, this generation has cast off God's law and given license to their lusts and carnal indulgence and worldly passions and robbed us of the power of God. Casting off of God's law. Had folks say to me before, if I believe preacher here in this county, if I believe what you believe, I just go ahead and live like hell. Well then clearly, brother, you don't know what I believe. Because if you believe what I believe, you'd think you'd feel like you're living like hell when you're doing the best you can do. You'd still feel dirty and unclean. Because the law of God bears down on you. You look at it and it's perfect. And you're sinful. 
I'm telling you that a condition in this text, in this text, a condition, a term of God's deliverance is full and absolute surrender to the law of God. Oh, I give you Roger's words again. Can I read them to you again? Just these words. Hereby and under a ceremony, he requires that of his, which in plain words he doth elsewhere require, ye shall therefore be perfect, for your Father in heaven is perfect. And if that's going to happen, I can't see how that's going to happen with me throwing the law of God overboard. He says in another place, also purify yourselves as I am pure. Be merciful even to your, as your heavenly Father and be holy, for I'm holy. In another place, he says, without holiness shall no man see the Lord. Obedience. These are terms I've given you. Four conditions from this text by which God will bring deliverance. But just by way of an introduction to the next message, can I just point out this to you, just a little teaser if you please. The whole burden of this thing, the whole burden of this thing falls on a little woman. A little woman. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto the woman. Hmm. May God help us to see the conditions of His deliverance. Turn with me, if you will, in your hymn book. Stand with me. And we sing together number 501. Hymn number 501. I waited patient for the Lord. He bowed to hear my cry. He saw me resting on His Word and brought salvation nigh. <clears throat> I waited patient for the Lord. He bowed to hear my cry. He saw me resting on His word and brought salvation now. He